Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of What the Truck as we track the latest up-to-the-minute details of Hurricane Florence as it threatens the Virginia and Carolina coasts. I'm Chad. And I'm JP. And for today's podcast, we're visited by FreightWave's founder and CEO, Craig Fuller, Executive VP of Community Engagement, David Bradford, and FreightWave's meteorologist, Nick Austin. Actually, the debut of Nick Austin as FreightWave's meteorologist. Uh, Craig, do you want to talk a little bit just about what brings Nick to the company and why his role is so necessary to our mission? We're yeah, I can talk right into the storm, man. <laughs> I can <laughs> I can talk a little about why we invited Nick, and then he can talk about why he's here. But yeah, actually, uh, Nick's uh, official start date is on Monday, uh, but we we figure because of what's happening with the hurricane. Uh, that we wanted him to come visit early, and so that's why he's here. I, I think, as we think about the freight market, where it's headed, you know, weather has a tremendous impact on uh, the demand side of it. You know, how, what crops, uh, agricultural products are being produced, um, how people are buying goods. Retail uh, trends are actually driven a lot by weather. Uh, I think what foods people consume, and so on the demand side, it's really important. And then on the supply side, as you think about how impactful weather is to trucks and drivers and, and what takes place. Uh, you look at things like um, uh, winter weather, uh, obviously big storms, and tropical weather that we're seeing right now. And so having Nick come in and help uh, articulate uh, those stories, I think, are important for our, our readers. Well, why don't we start with that? Nick, you want to give us uh, kind of some up-to-the-minute nuts and bolts about what the storm is doing? Absolutely. The... Um the National Hurricane Center, they're, they're updating every three hours. So the next update will be at 5 o'clock. But the last one, which was just an hour and a half ago, um, according to the reconnaissance planes, those are great people. They fly, literally fly at high altitudes into the eye of the hurricane. Wow. And they have a little box that contains weather instruments, and they drop it down into the storm, get measurements of winds, uh, mainly for winds and other, uh, but some other parameters too. So right now it's a Category Three storm. It's it's a big storm. It's very powerful. Um, right now the maximum sustained winds right around the eye of the storm are right around 125 miles per hour, which puts it at a Category Three. Didn't the eye do something weird last night? It became like a a wider eye. Or? Right. O- oftentimes the eye can sometimes collapse and then and then reform. Okay. And that often happens with hurricanes, particularly out in the Atlantic, but sometimes in the Gulf as well. Um, and and it, it actually, at one point, it was a, a Category 1 hurricane. It weakened back to a tropical storm. But then as it was moving over warmer waters once again, and there's no land in the way, land masses in the way, it's been gaining strength, more and more strength over the past few days. So um, it was as high as Category 4 at one time. Right. Um, so it's weakened a bit, but the extent of tropical storm force and hurricane force winds away from the eye wall is getting bigger. So the overall storm itself is, is huge. So does that mean more water will be dumped yeah. on, on the uh, Carolinas at this point? Absolutely. What, based on the latest path, which the latest projected path takes it a little bit further south than expected as far as landfall, but that could change again as well. So right near the North Carolina, South Carolina uh, border. Is not it, far from North, North Myrtle Beach area. Is it necessarily worse or or better that it's Category 3 as opposed to Category 4, or w- will there be just as much damage either way? Uh, category 3 is going to be bad. Yeah, I mean, Category 4 would be a bit worse, but okay. Category 3 is 
will cause a, a lot of destruction. And it, it will. It's, it's not just the wind, but the rain, Craig, as you mentioned, because what looks like it might happen is once the storm actually makes landfall, it could slow down a lot and possibly even stall over that area or possibly in East uh, Georgia, which means North Carolina, parts of North Carolina and most of South Carolina will just get inundated with rain possibly for two or three days in a row. And the water is the most damaging part of the hurricane, right? Uh, typically, yeah, the storm surge from the wind pushing all the water on the shore because that gets in the inlets, that gets in all the neighborhoods right there along the coast. And then you also have the problem with the storm stalling. So there's going to be actual rainfall on top of all that. Um, so that that's flooding is usually what causes the most deaths um, with hurricanes. And the, and the effects could be felt for weeks or months, as I understand. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because especially the wind damage, there'll be loss of electricity, which could be for weeks or months because um, it'll be over such a widespread area. Um, just all the damage to homes and businesses. So um, that's the with hurricanes, it's wind, and and then you have all the rain and the storm surge on top of it. Right. So and it's right. going to be over a very very large area. Okay. And so, we're still and I think now they're kind of project. You know, the storm has slowed a, a little bit. They're kind of projecting Friday landfall. Right now, probably Friday night. Yes. Yeah. About oh, wow. a, about tw- about twenty four hours later than. Initially. What was showing on yesterday's forecasts, right? And that's why it's important when we're talking about hurricanes that, that we, you have to keep up with the updates every day. You have to watch them daily because um, it, it, anything can change. The, the track of these storms can change even on within 24 hours of making landfall. So it's very important to, to keep up with it every single day. Right. Now, um, that's what we've been trying to do. Thanks a lot for just giving us the latest information. Um, we also have one thing that since since Nick is new to really our Freightways audience, maybe a two second overview of your background and and why you decided to come here. Okay, well, I when I was older, I decided to go back to college. My first degree was in business, actually, <laughs> and I decided when I was in my late twenties to go back to school for meteorology. Weather had always been a side interest, and I decided to pursue it as a career and. Um, decided to choose broadcasting as opposed to operational meteorology like at the Weather Service or in, in private industry. Broadcasting seemed like it would be interesting. And and so I did that for since late 2001. I worked at a station in Jackson, Tennessee, and then I came here to Channel 3 in Chattanooga um, eight years ago. Fantastic. And, but, uh, and now I'm happy to still be involved in meteorology, but just in a different way. Yeah, so, great to have yeah. you here. You're Thank you. You're bringing really cool. the goods right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, we also have, you know, like, like we said earlier, David Bradford here and um, Craig Fuller, both of whom have a lot of experience not on the meteorology side per se, but on the logistics side of hurricane preparedness and relief. Um, can you guys talk just a little bit about how you got into the business, the storms you were involved in, and what it looks like on the the transportation side? Yeah, happy to do so. So um, a little bit about my background. This is Craig. Um, I've been on the podcast once related to BIDA. Uh, This is the first time I've been out here. But um, I've been in in the freight business um, practically my whole life. I grew up in it. uh, And in 2002, uh, in 2003, I ran a division of U.S. Express, which provide on-demand 
uh, logistics services. And, and, and basically our motto is, we'll give you as many trucks as you want, uh, but we won't guarantee a price because we were living in the spot market. We were kind of the first uh, spot market clearinghouse uh, business out there. And um, we used our own trucks. They were disk presses. And UPS had uh, secured uh, an, a contract for disaster relief. Uh, and they had secured it two weeks before Hurricane Isabel hit. And they were underprepared. Being the world's largest logistics companies, they like to do things methodically and correct. And this was, uh, at the time, no one had ever taken on a, per- there had never been private contractors in FEMA. And I don't think anyone understood what that would actually be. So this, this was a contract directly from FEMA? Yes. Yeah, so F- well, FEMA had a relationship with a water supplier uh, out of Georgia who had a relationship with UPS. UPS uh, took on the agreement to do the logistics. But um, no one at the time understood what it would actually take to execute. And UPS likes to do things methodically. Um, and it didn't fit very well inside their operations at the time. And so, uh, but we were a UPS contractor, UPS supplier, uh, providing uh, brokerage services or providing truck services for UPS. And we got the phone call. So Friday afternoon, we had done a lot of pre-run-up. Being in the on-demand business, we were doing a lot of work for Home Depot and Lowe's and people that did gas cans and uh, people at Nestle Waters and stuff. And so... We had a lot going on up that week. We got a call from UPS, and uh, they said, hey, I have 101 truckloads of uh, bottled water moving out of Canada, and uh, I, need, I need to get a price on these trucks. And somebody quoted it, but it was too high. It was $1.71 round, all miles paid. At those days, uh, our average rate at U.S. Express was $1.44, and UPS uh, basically effectively said, you know, we're large logistics companies. We can find alternative suppliers. Uh, that was a Friday afternoon. And it was Sunday morning at 9 a.m. The hurricane had hit, and I was relaxing because we had been working six days a week for 20 hours a day. Um, and I was relaxing. I got a phone call, and it was the guy from UPS, my contact, and says, Craig, I don't care what it costs, but I need trucks, and I need them now. And I Whoa. said, how many of those trucks, did you loads did you move? He goes, two. I had 101 loads, and they had two. And I said, he goes, I said the guy named was Tony. I said, Tony, you know how this works. He's like, what do you mean? I said, you're going to have to pay. And he's like, I, I have whatever it takes. Um, uh, and I think he used the word blank check. And so I'm like, okay, that, that I think we can be helpful. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll call you when I get to the office. So I ran down to the office. We, my, my house is about 10 minutes away. Uh, watching the office about 10 a.m. And um, by the time I got to the office, left the house and got to the office, it had gone to 600 orders and had gone from 101 wow. to 600. And so uh, we took them all. We took 100% of them. And... Our operation was eight people at the time, and I basically called every resource I cut in and said, we're going to take this and, and do a really good job with it, and we did. And David didn't work for us at that point, but David actually, that was his first day. Yeah. Uh, so Bradford, he that's where I met Bradford, was his very first day, uh, was the first day of hurricane relief. Yeah, sat in a desk for 21 hours, uh, moving 600 loads of water, basically in one night. Uh, so how do, tell us about tell us about how that works. Where did the water? How the water get from Canada to where it needed to be? Where was it staged? Yeah, what kind so of facilities? We, so UPS realized that they were underprepared for this particular project. Um, they had not ramped up resources, and you really had to have your own assets in those days. The brokerage business was not sophisticated, and, and UPS was a small player in those days. Uh, they didn't have coyotes, so this is pre coyotes, two thousand three, right. and so um, they pretty much wanted. They, they pretty much said, hey, take it. Like, we'll, we'll be, they were involved in some logistics early on. Um, but what happened is we would get the orders, and then we would dispatch the trucks. And so we, would, we had all 600 orders, 
and we had to manually enter them in those days. We didn't have a system to dupe, so we had 600 orders, identical orders. It took five minutes to build the order, uh, so I called our programmer in, and I said, I need you to build me a dupe system. So he coded for about six hours and had come up with this dupe system. I think we're 300 some odd orders into it, and we pressed one button, and 300, they, <laughs> these guys have been bleeding for five minutes, and he pressed one, we pressed one button, and it was there, and it was awesome. And uh, so the orders, the dispatches went out. Um, those red trucks, U.S. Press's red trucks, uh, took those dispatches, and we were pulling pretty much the entire eastern seaboard fleet. Uh, and so we had every available asset. There were drivers at home, uh, on home time. We were calling up uh, saying, hey, we'll, we'll pay you to come out of the house and take these orders out of Canada. And so they would go into Canada, they'd pick them up, uh, and then they would uh, they were bringing them into Fort Eustis, Virginia, is where they were staging them. So what about, like, um, hours of service regulations? I know this is pre-ELD, but, like, how... Like were those were those waived? The kid just yeah they, they just drive straight. So from and you're seeing it right now. The FMCSA during times of disaster will waive regulations around weight, uh, waive regulations around uh, hours of service because they realize that in a, in the event of an emergency, that um, there are exceptions that that will be made. Right, right. And, and so in they, that instance, actually, the cross border out of Canada into the U.S. was waived as well. We were able to send the trucks on across without having to go through the... They didn't have to go through customs, which is sort of insane when you think about it. It's yeah. sort of cool, uh, but they actually had a dedicated line uh, on the at, the at the border crossing that our wow. trucks would go through and they were escorted through with authorities. And so there was just this line of 600 trucks going from Canada to the U.S. And meanwhile, we had screwed up U.S. Express's entire Eastern Seaboard fleet because there was all these trucks going into this right, uh, Air right. Force base. And so they show up in Fort Eustis, started rolling in about Monday morning. Um, so the dispatches came in on Sunday. It's about 600, 700 miles uh, from uh, where we were at in Canada to uh, Fort Eustis. And they roll in, and they're there on Monday, and not a single one is leaving. And so these trucks are piling up, and there were 600 trucks going in. This is uh, two years after September 11th. This is on an active military installation. Uh, there are guys walking around with M16s, fully armed. Drivers are not allowed to go to the bathroom without military escorts. And it is oh, just man. it is just wow. chaos. The Sounds governor, like it, it was a complete mess. The governor of Virginia gets on TV Monday afternoon screaming about how he need, uh, needs the government, the federal government's not uh, helping. FEMA needs to get involved. There are 600 trucks sitting 30 miles from where he's speaking that have not moved. And they're full of water. They're full wow. of water and MREs and ice and all sorts of stuff. And they're just sitting on a tarmac. And so this is Monday afternoon. Um, we, we didn't see any of them move. Our drivers who had, some of them had home time, some people had weddings that they were had to go for the weekend. Um, one had a death in the family and couldn't leave the military installation. The military at the time would not let the drivers leave because they viewed it as their property. This is property of the government. And FEMA and the state government, the local government, did not have any understanding of what to, to do. This is the first time that under, under George W. Bush that they had used private contractors. Before that, it was all military it's the first time they'd use private contractors. And so because of that, they just didn't know what to expect. And you had folks from FEMA who were really good people and people on the ground, but just didn't understand logistics. So they didn't understand what they wanted to do was have these drivers come in and they wanted to dispatch one-off loads. 
And they, but they didn't do it for two days because there are seven. Keep in mind, in a hurricane, there are seven federal agencies or seven government agencies involved before an order, a task order, can go out. So you have all these trucks, you have all this bottled water sitting there, and they wouldn't them one at a time. And they, 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 didn't, they at this point, they had dispatched none. And we're here. So that was Monday. Uh, I think by Tuesday, they dispatched maybe like five trucks had gone out. Water, there's no water anywhere in in this community because the, the the fresh water is gone. No tap water, and these trucks are just accumulating. And so by Wednesday morning, we we lost our patience, and basically said we're taking over the thing. So we took a we took a private jet. We had ten people fly in to this military base, and basically we walk. They walk in, and, and you were on there. You were David. You were there, right? No, the first one that I went on site was actually Charlie in 04. Um, I believe we'd sent some of the U.S. Express driver liaisons that had worked with the other drivers, some of the trainers, and then a couple staff members out there as well to start working directly with, with, with uh, you know the FEMA folks there, and to start because it it was just a matter of working with the drivers and putting them in you know the 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 right line. Right. You know they had right. drivers coming in and out of the same gates. You had. You know, it, it was well, almost, at this point, they weren't letting them out. Well, they weren't letting them out, they, they, were yeah. si- they were sitting there on the tarmac. And this is 48 hours, or at this point, 96, uh, 96, hours, af- hours. 96 hours after yeah. the hurricane had hit. There are 600 truckloads of bottled water sitting 30 miles from where people need them, <laughs> and they're not leaving. Yeah. They're yeah, not that's, leaving. That's crazy. It's insanity. So, obviously, it sounds like there was a pretty steep learning process, both for the government and for the private contractors. Well, the contractors, so there was the, the bottle water bottle contractors, and then there was us. Right, and right. UPS was kind of in there. Um, very quickly, I think on Monday, UPS basically called and said, hey, we need you to take care of this. We trust you guys to handle it. We're not ready and prepared to take on this activity. And so they basically handed us the relationship because they, I think they did the right thing. They said, we'll cover all the costs. We realized that we, 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 so basically they, they were willing to cover all the costs and ensure that we as a contractor, UPS were taken care of. And more importantly, they said that you guys are better prepared being an asset based truck care to take on this project. Yeah, and if you want it, it's yours forever. And, Please, we just don't want, we don't want to be involved in it. And I think that was the right thing to do. And so by Wednesday, we flew up there and walked into the office and basically said, we're taking over. And they're like, no, you're not. And we said, no, we're li- these are our trucks. These are our drivers. Uh, these drivers have not left in 48 hours. There is a serious issue here. There are no facilities here for them. We are taking our trucks off this property, and we're taking over this project. And so it, 45 minutes, uh, a decision ensues that we're probably best logistics. And they're like, well, how are you going to take over? And we said, we're going to take and leave 500 of these trailers on the tarmac, and we're going to use 100 shuttle drivers to go through and deliver bottled water, and we're going to dispatch them all. You're not going to do it. Wow. And that was what happened. After about 45 minutes, they realized they knew nothing about logistics, and that was that was how we became the logistics provider for FEMA. And so t- let's t- go through kind of quickly. I'm interested in sort of the next couple storms you guys handled and sort of how you built on that experience how, um, you know, the things you learned and sort of how the process has changed over time. Well, I, I think we also, in fairness, we're, you know, we, we, we've talked a little bit about UPS's challenges. We've talked about FEMA's challenges. But everybody was unprepared for this. And, and this is the first time that private contractors have gotten involved uh, at the scale it had. And um, because of that, no one really knew what we didn't know. And so we learned a lot in the iterations. I, we, we had our on-site staff. Um, there was a... Uh, was, well, we actually put all the one thing that we'd learned is we put on-site staff immediately before the trucks even got there. 
we had on-site staff. Uh, we made sure that, which actually the government helped with, Red Cross was coming in and feeding drivers because before they didn't have food, the restrooms, so they started bringing in porta toilets, showers, food for the drivers to keep them happy. We we made sure that we prepared the drivers not only from a paperwork standpoint because that's a whole nother animal in this, but also just to be prepared that mentally you're gonna be sitting for a while. This is not a hook go and then you're out type of deal. You, you're going to be delayed. So if you've got family engagement, stuff like that, we need to know so we can coordinate. And don't uh, put you property. on property. Right. right. And how do you, how do you um, like nowadays, having been through a bunch of storms, how do you coach drivers to be ready, you know, psychologically, you know, sort of, um, you know, in terms of business, in terms of what are they going to get paid? What are they going to well, have to do? So there's a, how do there's they a, stay safe? There's a big difference between what we did at U.S. Express and what large uh, 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 asset-based carriers that have their own drivers are going to do versus an owner-operator. Because an owner-operator, in many ways, is his own business person. And they're going to have to make the decisions uh, using their instincts and their knowledge and what they're learned uh, on how to manage these uh, relationships and how to manage the activities versus a company... The nice thing about being an asset-based carrier, uh, at least being a driver for that, is you have a lot of resources available to you. You have a lot of people who can guide you and coach you. Um, and so if you're, you know, if people are listening, they're independent operators, there's a lot of money to be made. And more importantly, they're doing a service to the community that, that I think has to be done. But they also have to be aware of what they're getting into because there's no one that understands all the logistics. You know, when we were going on site at U.S. Express, we were we were interested in helping everybody out, and we ended up dispatching other people's trucks because <laughs> that was the right, right thing to do. But ultimately, the people there for U.S. Express are to represent U.S. Express's interest, and you have to keep that in mind if you're an independent operator. Um, you can make a lot of money and do very well, and it's great and rewarding work. But you you're not going to have the level of support you would have. Uh, by not being a part of a fleet, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting anyone should go out and be a part of a fleet. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you have to be prepared if you're an independent operator get involved in this. That you're going to be dealing with payment issues. You're going to be dealing with brokers. You're going to be dealing with paperwork. It is a big headache. It's not just hey, there's a bunch of money to be made. There's a reason there's a bunch of money to be made because it's, it's a difficult, nightmare. risky work. It's a very risky. It's risky. <laughs> You know, we, we uh, what we would do on the front end is, is do a safety briefing. That was the most important thing because ultimately um, there is nothing to be gained by sending a driver into a situation where they're going to get hurt. And uh, they are, these the roads and the highways, the signs are down. There's, there could be uh, electricity lines on the roads. There could be trees on the roads. There's flooding. There's all these things that take place, as you can imagine, in a hurricane that are not typical with driving around I-20 and I-40. And I think, I think even if you've been to some of the rough parts uh, in our country, some of the rougher roads, it's unlike anything you've seen. It looks like a war zone when you fly in, and that that's a that's a tough environment as a professional driver to be dealing with. And you have 45,000 pounds of bottled water uh, on the back of your trailer, and you have an 80,000 uh, pound truck, and you're going down highways that are blocked, and you're having to go secondary roads. It's a, it's a difficult thing. So it's a safety briefing that takes place, and then it's when they get on site, um, at least for U.S. Express, they would seek out the U.S. Express representatives. And, we, at, you know, once we got, we had about a, a, a 60 to 1 ratio, 60 trucks for every uh, U.S. Express employee. And uh, they would be there to help usher and answer questions for the drivers. And one thing to really stress to the drivers that, that Craig actually touched on is the, the reward from it. 
you would see these drivers that had sat for three, four, sometimes longer, you know, weeks, and they, they get tasked to go to a Walmart um, because people were coming there. That's, that's one of the spots where people are going to come to that parking lot to get water for their families. And these drivers are literally handing water off the back of their truck to these people that have lost everything. Mm-hmm. And it makes them really feel involved. And, and that's when you get the phone calls and go, okay, I get it now. This is why I'm here. Right. This is the, you know, the bigger story here is me helping this little kid that's walking up and getting the water. And that's, that's one thing that you want to stress to the drivers. And, you know, another thing is the whole communication from not only a staff standpoint like us, but for the drivers too, we would get down there not knowing if we were going to have power for laptops cell towers for our cell phones to work, you know, air cards so we'd have internet service to be able to communicate. And, and it was, you know, it's, it's those preparations that it took different times of us doing this to really We had a mobile understand. command. We built a mobile command center which had yeah. 11 satellites, uh, had these satellite uplinks to it um, using Orbcom satellites. And uh, it would go in there, it had generators and it had, there was these offices, it was desks inside of it. It was a mobile command center that we would take on site because of the, there is no terrestrial, cell, cellular phones are knocked out. Right. There's no power. And so the only power we had was on the was in this trailer that we would take. And so that the, was part of it. So part of the business side of the logistics is not just that it's this, this opportunity for people to exploit a, a, a high spot market, as I'm hearing, but it's a, a potential to, you know, expect the unexpected and, and, and go in there and uh, actually help the community. It's yeah, truly a lending hand. I mean, it's it's these drivers banding together to go down there and, and help folks. I mean, it's it's an important aspect for, uh, you know, for the devastation. You see a lot of materials go in pre-hurricane for people to prepare for this. But what goes on after the devastation is just, it's monumental. And, and these drivers really do enjoy being there and being part of that. Yeah, I think that's the part that um, that David touched on, which is really important, is there is a sense that you're solving something and you're helping to do something that's really powerful. And you, you have, you're part of that uh, uh, operation. And I think we talk a lot about the business opportunity, right. as you mentioned, uh, and the things it takes to actually do well in those environments. But more importantly, you're doing something well. Yeah. Um, but it's a very taxing thing. I mean, David I touched think. on it. And some of these big hurricanes, these, these relief uh, processes can take 90 days. You're, you're down there for three months. And these are these are drivers that either wow. independent operators or companies that have their trucks tied up, they need to get paid because they're, they're actually doing something. And I think we pay taxes. I pay taxes. We all pay taxes. And this is, there's, there is nothing, that's what our taxes are there to do is to support services. We need the government at that moment more than we've ever needed it. And that's what our tax dollars are there to support uh, ensuring that uh, our infrastructure is rebuilt and that we have supplies when we need them. Is there, is there anything else that we could, you know, say to the, the drivers out there um, how to be prepared or what to anticipate? What to bring with them? Well, first of all, bring food yes. because you have to, if you imagine going into a war zone, this is, imagine the, the movies you see where uh, World War II and you, you, the buildings are all done. There is no infrastructure. You're in some of the deeper parts of the hurricane, the grocery stores are closed down. Even if they're not devastated, there's no power and the generators won't work. They can't get their hands on generators. So all of the food is spoiled. They're not open. There is right. no internet. 
So there is no uh, cellular communications whatsoever. Your phone won't work. That's got to be shocking. Like, you, you're running it, and you suddenly you realize, my, wow. Like, and it, and it could be 30 days. I mean, there are times in some of these more, like the Outer Banks and, and parts of the Outer Bank, I suspect that power could be out for 30 days. And especially in some of these remote areas where they're not going to get the attention by some of the utilities, um, they're, they're, what's going to happen is they're going to restore the major commercial centers first is what typically happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they kind of make their way out to the suburban communities. And so uh, in some of these areas, I mean, in Katrina, it was months before they were able to restore any kind of basic services. In fact, there are parts of, of New Orleans that, when I, you know, six, seven years ago were still, still looked like war zones, were still un, unbuilt. Can you guys talk about your experience um, during Hurricane Katrina? Uh, yeah, so, well, real quick before that, you know, something that he mentioned, that even if you are lucky enough to have a generator, you know, of course the drivers on the diesel fuel, they'll bring trucks out to, to take care of them on site. Oh. But even if you're fortunate enough to have a generator, there there's a good chance you're not going to be able to find gasoline for it. I mean, prime example, Hurricane Charlie, we went down, flew down, got a rental car, went to three different gas stations over like a 15-mile radius just to get a full tank of gas. So, you know, there, there's just so many things that, that you have to, to know. Uh, but from a, you know, a driver's standpoint, that's not it because they're taking care of on the diesel side. Now, Katrina, um, yeah, that was, like Craig said, that was, that was a, a different animal. That um, was a mess. They got it down there. You know, I remember getting a phone call from a driver asking how to get back to his truck. And, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, um, you know, I had a CDL, so they had me drive a busload of people to uh, one of the, the shelters where they were, you know, putting everybody. And I was like, you just drove a bus? And he's like, yeah. And I said, well, I guess you got to take the bus back. I mean, they were tasking <laughs> drivers to do things that, you They know, were hauling cadavers at one point. Yes. Drivers that were, they were loading cadavers in the back of trailers. I mean, it's, this is a, something like we've, that you don't experience. We're, we're very, very blessed in the sense that we, we were somewhat spoiled too, uh, that we, can go to the grocery store and it's constantly stocked. And I, I think, right. you know, people forget how important logistics is. Right. But in an environment where you don't even have electricity, you don't have the internet, you don't have cellular connections, you don't have roads that work, uh, you don't have water, uh, you don't have gasoline. Think, think this is, south this is an apocalyptic zone for, for yeah. many months. Like Craig said, you know, it could be up to 90 days. I mean, right off the top of my head, uh, driver sat there for 92 days, never moved, because he had diving equipment on the back of his truck. And every morning they would come take this equipment off his truck and dive into the basements because, you know, the the level at Katrina, there was a lot of flooding. So they were diving into basements and, and, pulling, people and out. pulling people out. And, and that driver sat there for 92 days straight and never moved. Just so they would have this equipment, just so they have for a rescue, basically or a dry storage space. Exactly, for he was a basically a dry storage for them, and he loved it. He because he felt like he was really part of something, and he well, was right. Well, hopefully, I've, as my understanding is that FEMA uh, is, you know, they can they continue to make adjustments, they continue to learn from the past. Let's hope, and you know, and today I've been hearing that there are some, you know, different kinds of pre prep that they're doing. So hopefully the, yeah, the human guys, error won't compound it as badly. We've as heard we've heard that FEMA, to their credit, has been you know maybe it's in reaction to last year's really severe Atlantic hurricane season. But I thought last year was more smooth. I mean, last year not, was smooth. 
in terms of the relief operations than what we dealt with. Harvey was obviously the biggest. Yeah, but but you have in, to remember that we're way, and this is the part that people don't appreciate because FEMA gets a bad rap, and and maybe some of it's deserved. Uh, it's always easy to point fingers at the federal government, but you have to remember at the end of the day, right. FEMA's an insurance company. Their job is to deploy money, and they have a very small staff that's to deploy resources. It's really up to the states to actually execute. The, the Army Corps of Engineers and the states themselves are the ones that actually execute the relief projects. And the states uh, have a lot right. of power because of the way our, our system works, is the state has to request the federal government to come in before it can happen. And the states actually have power over these relief projects, which which is why when Katrina hit, it was such a disaster of, upon a disaster yes. because Louisiana, it hit Louisiana, which was a... As a Which was a cluster. Was a cluster. Yeah. But when, when, when it hit Texas and when it hits Florida, look, if I, look I, I, if I were stuck in a disaster, if I could pick any state in the country to <laughs> pick where that would be, Florida. it would be Florida. Yeah, because that absolutely. state is on top of it. They are ready. They have warehouses full of supplies. They, they, are, they, are, they are so ready for it, and their people are prepared for it because they deal with it every single year. Uh, yeah. uh, and they prepare for it, and they run drills. That is, Which makes me wonder about the Carolinas uh, coming up with the Florence because they don't get a lot of hurricanes. That's true. I don't know. I have not. I don't remember we ever dealt with a hurricane. We have heard things that that you know a lot of these agencies are ta- taking steps earlier than they have in the past. Can you, can well, you to speak your to that question reference? a minute ago, that's the one thing that I've probably noticed over the years that has changed, um, especially as of recent. Is it seems like. The, at the state level, that, that decision is being made quicker, which is allowing FEMA to deploy and task faster. That, that's probably the biggest change that I've seen uh, where there's not that law of, of wait between the two communicating and when you're going to call the next one in. And I think I have to think, um, Nick, to bring you back in the conversation, that some of that uh, lead time and pre-staging has to do with the increased accuracy of hurricane forecasting models. I mean, have you... You know, over the past you know fifteen years. I mean, yes. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Well, with um, certainly with the big improvements in satellite imagery, as well as you know, kind of refining the a lot of the computer models, uh, which there when it comes to tropical and, weather, and there are a lot of them. I don't know if you've all have heard of the spaghetti the oh, yes. spaghetti plots. We've been oh, yeah. On that. Okay. Yeah, we've been so, ch- checking those out. But improvements in in those models, the satellite imagery. Um, I would think increased, increased uh, computer power itself, right? I mean, yes. larger super. I mean, to, the, to the largest agree. computers in the world work on this. Uh, yes, yeah, to agree. Especially the European model is probably the most powerful as far as computing mm-hmm. power. But um, so yeah, it's definitely gotten better uh, well, over you, the past couple Can you give us decades. a sense of like, you know, how many days out? things are relatively accurate compared to in the past? I mean, have, is there an improvement you can quantify? Well, that's tough because even even within 24 hours of landfall, with all the tools that we have, we still can get thrown a curveball. Right. Um, not, not in all cases, but it has happened before. I, I don't remember which one was the most recent, but it, it has happened where, uh, well, it, it happened to a certain degree with Katrina. Um, that was not supposed to make a direct hit on New Orleans, but it changed directions within one to two days of making landfall. I think within 24 hours, really. Um, and it remained stronger than, than people expected as well. Right. Um, so even with all the improvements, there's, you know, Mother Nature still just does what she wants. Right. And, but, but it has come a long way. 
it has come a really long Which way. Tropical weather, yeah. even just you know forecasting at a local level for for a particular place. Um, but I wanted to make just a few more quick notes about the storm itself. Sure. Okay. Um, sure. Because there's there are going to be traffic problems for I mean for any truck drivers trying to to get there before the storm particularly or still trying to make deliveries or anything before right uh, the storm actually makes landfall because there are hurricane warnings for most of the North Carolina coast, um, part of the South Carolina coast, down to about Myrtle Beach. And people, there will be tropical storm force winds in that area probably by tomorrow night. Okay. So 39 to 73 mile an hour winds before the eye of the storm even makes landfall. And that's 24 hours before the possible lamp before it's probably going to make landfall. So, um, people will continue to be evacuating. The highways will be busy uh, across, right, especially right. all the highways across the Carolinas. People trying to still get out. Now, eventually, I would think at some landfall. point it's pretty dangerous to drive a truck in high winds. I mean, right, yeah, the high profile. I, I mean, mean, if you're loaded down with water, that's probably one thing. But yeah. if you're, empty, you definitely want to be loaded in that situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Why don't we just come up with a list of some things that drivers who want to participate in disaster relief, like a hurricane, should bring with them just to be prepared? Yeah, I, I think first of all, you, you're going to be very bored. These are you're, you're even when you're doing a task, you're going to a site if you're not unloading. So things to entertain yourself that are do not require electronics. <laughs> right, that won't be yourself. So you you're gonna you're gonna want uh, a pack of cards. You're gonna want some uh, board games. A book or something like that. Maybe a couple of them because you may be there a while. You're going to want batteries. You're going to want food, uh, bottled, a bunch of bottled water, anything else? Uh, you know, your bath needs. Uh, definitely you want to have that stuff with you because um, some of these areas, uh, you know, the stores have been cleaned out and some of them aren't even going to be open because there's no power. Uh, your own toilet paper. Cash. Um, if you do need to buy anything that is available, cash because most of your machines are going to be down. Uh and, you know, just, yeah, I mean, something to occupy your time because there is a lot of waiting during this. Flashlights, what extra batteries. What kind of board games would you recommend? I, mean, you know, like, I actually saw drivers I'm not playing. not going to get a lot of mileage out of sorry. I actually I saw think. drivers playing Monopoly. Monopoly. Uh, it, takes, stuff it, against, it takes forever. Because there's usually. Yeah. For, for the most, <laughs> I was thinking Risk. Risk, risk is good. Be a good but game. Rook is good. I mean, a pack of, of, of cards you is get a cool, lot of right? Yeah. So. Can I add one least, thing to the list? Yes. Because they'll need obviously non-perishable foods, which a lot of them will be canned foods. Bring a manual can opener. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. a good. Yeah. And I, did you know the number the one food consumed during? Because it won't be electricity. Uh, uh, number, number one food consumed during a hurricane is, is pop tarts. No, it's pop tarts. Really? Because you don't have to cook them. They're high. They're, uh, they're they have yeah, a high, high degree cal- of calories. I was wondering if it might be and you don't have to. Kill. You don't they have, have, to cook they have them. an extremely long shelf life because they're potted yeah. meat. They're so good, yeah. <laughs> but they're the number one. <laughs> Food consumed during a hurricane. Pop tarts. Pop tarts. Things you learn. If you want to be the most popular person (laughs) on the site, bring a truckload of pop tarts. All right, man. What the truck listeners should be very, very prepared now. So, uh, so to our listening audience, stay safe out there. Uh, And um, man, guys, thanks so much for uh, for 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 uh, being being part of uh, our content for this special bonus episode. Um, and, you know, stay tuned to our Freight Waves coverage as we uh, will continue to uh, basically about hourly be tracking what's going on.